Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontiverac. Today in the house, Melissa Swift. Melissa, hello. A little bio, and then we'll get into what we're going to talk about today, which is work sucks. Yes, yes. Melissa, transformation leader at Mercer US in Canada. Melissa is responsible for workforce transformation, HR transformation, HR digitization, DEI, and workforce analytics. As a recognized thought leader on the subject of the future of work and future work post-COVID, she's been quoted on the subject in places like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, The Economist, The Washington Post, Axios, The Daily Mail, it goes on. She's helped build businesses previously in the ESG transformation space, including the sustainability services and clean tech practices at Deloitte and conducting two landmark carbon credit derivatives trades at Deutsche Bank. Her latest book is Work Here Now, Think Like a Human and Build a Powerhouse Workplace, which explores different ways to improve the growth-impeding, borderline inhumane people management practices we've created and endured over time. The book contains 50 strategies to create a powerhouse workplace at the organizational level, as well as 50 strategies to create powerhouse workplace at a team level, and a simple framework to make you people-centered decision-making experts. Melissa, thank you for joining me today. How fun is this? Because you start the book out with two words, work sucks. And I could not agree more. Great to talk to you. So what the hell got us to this place, first of all, with work sucks and why does it still suck? So, you know, it, it's fascinating because my personal epiphany that really started me, you know, kind of thinking on the train of thought that led to this book happened during COVID. But, um, you know, I heard a great quote from John Elkington the other day where he said, I write books on things I want to learn about. And so part of my learning as I started really researching with this kind of vague notion of, oh, something's just not right here, is how long work has sucked for? <laughs> because we have, we have this cultural narrative, right? You know, work sucked during the industrial revolution. Remember that guys, you know, people's arms used to get cut off machines, but it's not like that anymore. It doesn't suck anymore. <laughs> totally still sucks, right? And the interesting thing is that academic researchers know this and have been studying this in detail. They've been studying phenomenons like work intensification, which is where you're basically trying to smush too many units of work into one unit of time. So that might be, I have to pick too many strawberries in an hour. It might be, you know, I have 10 Zoom calls in a day. I don't know anyone whose day would be like that. Um, or, you know, greedy work, right? Where work has started to spill out into our mornings and our evenings and our weekends and our vacations, right? These trends were going on long, long before COVID. So that creepy feeling that we had of like work sucks, but this might not be a strictly recent phenomenon, that's correct. Research backs that. And that was probably my most sort of interesting headline epiphany in, in researching and writing this book. You know, it has sucked for quite a while. I mean, we're almost getting into the pluralized of centuries uh, in this case. Like whether we want to talk pre-Taylorism, Taylorism or post-Taylorism, we're still living kind of in this scientific principles of management era where do more with less seems to be the adage prescribed and then ordained uh, throughout leadership and management ranks. So why can't we seem to get past the work sucking part? Like what are some of the impediments that you've seen in your work at Deloitte and Mercer researching for the book and so on? 
Yeah, so, you know, part of it is that we are so, we have done so little work on kind of measuring aspects of human work and human workforces. So, you know, think about kind of the development of, let's say, the finance function versus the HR function. So I talk about in the book, HR has like this dark past, right? HR was basically founded to quell violent clash between management and labor, right? Finance doesn't have that history. It's just, right. it's just not as dark. So in the finance function, we've got these really nice, well-developed, well-thought-through, often highly regulated metrics about how we measure progress. We don't have them on the people side of the house. So that old adage about can't measure, can't manage, that's part of what keeps things sucking, is that we're very able to measure, you know, to your point, sort of like rigidly tailoristic output. And one of the most interesting things is in the sort of the information economy, We've gone right back to Taylorism. It is amazing how quickly we've snapped back into that way of thinking. But part of what we need are the alternate metrics and the alternate just ways of looking at when it's not as clear as I was having a great conversation with a client the other day about, you know, in the Industrial Revolution, you could see when a factory was unsafe, right? Things would catch on fire and people would get injured. And, you know, it was it was pretty obvious. We are not as good at seeing when workplaces are are unsafe today to our mental well-being and they're degrading the health, the mental and physical health of our workers. We just, we don't have that same visibility in the information age. So we need that that new set of metrics and that new way of looking at things because in, in some ways that the sucking is creeping back in because it's it's not as visible. But you say in the book uh, and some of your other writing outside of the book that work is dangerous, it's dull, it's frustrating, it's confusing, it's annoying, it's intense, it's biased, it's misunderstood, it's performative. Yet for, you know, whatever, 20, 30 odd percent of us, it's delightful. So you kind of are painting some villains uh, in your work and the prevalence of these villains, uh, a couple being the work anxiety monster and then the uh, the boss baby customer. Can you unpack those two really uh, perfectly adroitly uh, defined terms and sort of help us understand how they're villainous? Yeah, so it's interesting because when I, I, I kind of have that same reaction that you did of, you know, there there are all these things wrong with work and, you know, yeah, there, there's still some really kind of great stuff about it. So who's, who's doing the wrongdoing? That's where these villains came from. So I'll start with the work anxiety monster. That's that little voice in your head that says people are slow, people are lazy, and it might even talk directly to you. It might say, hey, Dan, you're slow, you're lazy. And that little voice is responsible for so much of what goes wrong in organizations, right? We need to gin up more activity, you know, we need like do all the things, do more of all the things, right? That's the, what's the old, again, another old adage, anxiety, like activity absorbs anxiety. So we have to keep kind of doing, 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 because there's that little voice saying you're not doing enough. Well, it, that little voice has nothing to do with outcomes, right? Our anxious thoughts, any, anyone who practices cognitive behavioral therapy will tell you, your anxious thoughts are not to be trusted, but it works. <laughs> we listen to them and then we build whole organizations around them. So those anxious thoughts, they're not just you, Dan, you're not managing people correctly. It's you're setting up processes that manage people improperly. You're setting up systems that manage people improperly. You're growing other leaders to manage people improperly, right? It just, it multiplies out systemically. So that's that's the work anxiety monster. Then the boss baby customer is interesting because it comes from a really good po- place of positive intent that, and I trace it to, and this might just be my own personal kind of professional trajectory. I really trace it to the dot-com era. 
when uh -huh. we got uh -huh. so excited about the potential of the internet and over delivering for customers that we made this fundamental over rotation on customer centricity in a way that compromised employee experience and ironically it doesn't lead to the greatest customer experience either when your employees are stressed out miserable overtaxed that you know saying okay well if this is great you know we can deliver it in two days we can deliver it in one day we can deliver it in 15 minutes and i, I talk about in the book we can deliver it in 15 minutes is why you know i live in new york city i keep nearly getting hit by guys on electric bikes because somebody told a customer they could deliver it in 15 minutes and what happens is the guy on the electric bike is frantically rushing nearly killing pedestrians still can't get there in 15 minutes unhappy customer stressed out anxious worker stressed out anxious pedestrians nobody wins in a, a boss baby customer situation and it, it's weird we call them the boss baby because they're both the boss your customer is totally in charge of you but they're also a baby they can't do a thing for themselves right they are incapacitated and it's this weird way of thinking about your customer that's actually, again, unhelpful to both your employees and your customers. Reminds me a bit of Benit Nair of uh, HCL Technologies, whom probably, what, a decade ago, uh, wrote a book called Employees First, Customer Second, and really made the point that, you know, if we burn out and stress out our employees, what good is it putting customers first? Because they won't be first, they'll be last, because we don't have employees ultimately who are sane enough and physically and mentally well enough to actually serve said customers. So I'm with you. Uh, you point out something as well called the, the workforce copy machine. And quote, you say, the combination of structure and processes that keep us uh, in unproductive, unhealthy working grooves are things like, you know, the conflation of jobs and pay, uh, how talent acquisition set up to clone current people and processes and jobs, how the overall system complexity is higher today than it is. It should be for the people side, back to kind of what we're doing to people and how you also point out that to the fourth one, I think leadership is uh, promoting a reward for sameness. So all of these kind of copy machine or workforce copy machine impediments seem to also make your case that you know we it's really systemic some of the pieces in which that are creating these issues so tell us a bit about your notion of the workforce copy machine yeah so that, that one came out of sort of one of my hypotheses that part of what might be happening is just and this is kind of a fundamental way that i look at organizations and workforces and all that is just that that there are sort of unintentional choices that kind of run like almost background processes on your computer. And, and you're not saying, I want this to be this way, but you've set up a system that is just, it's like a perpetual motion machine. It is just running on its own steam. So what are those systems running on their own steam that, you know, it, it, it also came out of, I have this frustration with the term future of work, because I'm like, <laughs> the future never gets here. When is it gonna get here, right? But why doesn't it get here? Why do we keep repeating the past it's because these these things just kind of run on their own and they keep us stuck in in history so everything about talent acquisition as a for instance that you know you're going to open a new job rec okay which rec are you going to clone ah, you just use the verb clone you're literally yeah. saying yeah. <laughs> you know I, I worked with one organization that had wonderful language about this referencing blade runner where they said we're not hiring any replicants that basically if that person already works for us we're not hiring them again and i love that because the counterexamples are these freaky things like a financial services company that popped in my research for they had all these lacrosse players now nothing wrong with lacrosse players but you tell me do you want to work for an entire organization where everyone's 
way of looking at the world was shaped by lacrosse? No, there's just the stinks for diversity of thought, but there's so much in, because talent acquisition is such a heavy activity and in our Mercer research, it, it pops, it takes up a huge proportion of HR's time compared to talent management. Because it's such a heavy activity, again, we have these processes that just kind of run and you copy paste the old job description and, you know, your hiring managers aren't kind of thinking too differently, you know, well, does Bob have any, you know, lacrosse teammates we could hire, right? And so it's this unthinking repetition of the past right back into the future. And that's the, that's the workforce copy machine. Well, on one of those, uh, your pal and colleague at Mercer, Ravan Jaysathasan, has been on this program before that listeners and viewers might recall, and really making the point that we need to, you know, upgrade, if not just completely obliterate the current skills, talent practices. And you make also the point in the book that we are similarly stuck in a kind of antiquated, archaic era of how we treat jobs. So tell us a bit about your prescription, um, uh, which rather similar to Ravan's, right, is how we need to really be planning and, and retooling and doing things different when it comes to skills and, you know, the kind of future of jobs inside an organization. Absolutely. So look, I'm a, I'm a fan of, of Robin's work. And I think that part of what's going wrong in organizations is sort of a failure to apply that line of thinking more thoroughly. So one of the strategies I recommend in the book is making work deconstruction, pulling jobs apart and putting them back together differently or not putting them back together at all. Yeah. And to make that an everyday tool, you know, we, we think about these things, we're like, oh, that's so intellectually complex. Well, it's not. Anytime you've gone and had a conversation with your boss about, I'm just not sure this is my job, or I'm not sure this should be my job, congratulations, you're doing work deconstruction. And really weaving that mentality, right, that Robin talks about it, more deeply into how you operate and how you think about work and just not being so shackled to those historical constructs of what jobs look like. It's sort of like the, the more tightly we're tied to those, all that other bad stuff is happening, right? We're, we're hiring replicants or, you know, we're thinking about everything versus our comp spreadsheet, right? It just, it's, it's unhelpful, like pull the work and the jobs apart and a lot of good things start to happen. Well, you, you segue quite nicely then you pay uh, considerable attention in the book. Essentially you, uh, I would say, uh, you give a pretty good punch to the face of HR. And you've already sort of discussed it a little well, bit. In a supportive today. way. In a supportive way. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, yeah. That's people get into HR for generally unbelievably altruistic reasons about wanting to help people in organizations. But wow, HR has been stuck since yeah. its inception. Well, <laughs> this is why I wanted to delve a little deeper on this one because um, I've seen it for, for years now and how... Sort of the HR community, God bless them. They, they're just, they're, they're amazing people. Like they're humanistic, they're humane, they're purpose-driven, they're full of meaning, they're lots smart. of vitality, lots of smartness. Oh yeah, there's the yet or the but, right? That's coming up. And and you kind of point out in this, in your book, it's like, well, you, you gotta be able to actually push forward a little more. You know, it's like, you know, it's not enough to have a seat at the table. You kind of have to like build a new table and lead. So help me a little bit here, Melissa, like wh what is it that got us here today? And what, what really should, if an HR professional is listening in, what do they need to be doing differently based on kind of what you see? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, what got us here today, again, it's, it's that dark, gnarly history that HR was always about kind of holding the lid on a boiling pot. 
And we all know that's a futile exercise, right? You're probably going to get your hands burned. And, and right. at the end of the day, you know, if the fire stays on, the pot's going to boil. It's just, it's not a helpful task. Uh, and, and where the change comes from in some ways, and I think this was one of my big kind of COVID era ahas, is I did a lot of work with C-suites looking at remote work. Mm. And it felt like family therapy, right? There's so much change <laughs> and, you know, you're just kind of like, okay, the CFO over here, can you calm down, CMO, let's hear from, you know, a lot of, a lot of that stuff. But one of the things that really came out was that very senior business leaders have an array of beliefs about work. And they are not necessarily data and evidence driven. They're not necessarily correct. And a lot of them almost elevate to the level of myths. Mm. So a lot of our debate around remote work is kind of myth-making. I believe in the office as this place of seething innovation, right? You know, I mean, it's just, it's, and there's data on, on both sides of the remote work equation, right? But the conversation a lot of times is not in the data. The conversation is at myth-making level. And so what HR needs to do is number one, and this is not specific to remote work, this is across everything, mm -hmm. consciously engineer a conversation with senior business leadership about what do they believe about work, right? And, and do they even understand, you know, do they, if you said to them, did you know we have 150 accountants in this company, right? What would their reaction be? A lot of times they don't even have an evidence-driven view of who's in their workforce. The most basic, let's forget analytics for a second, descriptive statistics. Mm. Oftentimes business leaders are operating off fuzzy notions of how work is getting done because it's this topic that, it's one of the red threads of the book, how we get work done is an underexplored topic. It is just not adequately interrogated, discussed, debated, what have you. So the best thing HR can do, number one, is to tee up that conversation. And then number two, really in an evidence-driven way, start to connect people outcomes to business outcomes. Because mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's how we're gonna get there. And not things like, you know, the high-level business case for diversity, for instance, has been concretely established. Helpful, necessary, but not sufficient. Mm -hmm. What you need to establish in your company is I do this talent intervention here in our context and has this impact on our bottom line here in this company. And that, that's hard yards. Again, this is one of those things, simple but not easy, right? It's very simple to say that. There's a lot of hard yards behind that, but I think that's HR's journey for the next couple decades. So whether in HR or in the general population, uh, C-suite, senior leaders, mid-management, frontline, you know, one of the things you point out as well, which is pretty evident with not just uh, Mercer's data, your data, and any other organization firm data is the rapidly increasing rate of burnout and stress uh, amongst all levels of the organization. You know, we used to kind of scoff and say, oh, that's just the front line. You know, they're not cut or tailor-made to move up. Now it's it's everywhere. So uh, you point out, you know, in the book, you say, just do less. You know, and I quote, staying heads down in too many activities can leave leaders and team members alike perpetually on autopilot and stuck in endless loops of sameness. So tell me a bit about workload issues and what you think generally we should be doing to combat this anxiety, this stress, this real uh, rocket ship of uh, concern that I have, and I know you do. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, it's 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 interesting because we've conflated in some ways the the kind of the financial metrics and the people practices. So okay, this company needs to grow at X percent per year. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that, you know, you, Dan, in your job need to do that much more during each unit of your time? 
in terms of just activity. No, absolutely not. It does not linearly translate through. And yet that's kind of how we've we've approached the question, right? That we mm -hmm. just keep kind of piling and piling stuff on. And it, some of it is, it really is that anxiety monster, right? That if I'm doing more, we must be getting more results, right? But the interesting thing is with all of the technology that's coming to the equation, productivity and aggregate, up okay. and what it is it's our own bad working practices actually ho probably holding back the impact of technology because we've simply sort of piled too much onto humans and we're not being conscious of you know again think about let, let's go pre-industrial revolution let's go to an agrarian society okay let's do this yeah um, you know I'm, I'm i'm picking potatoes right so things will happen like you run out of potatoes to pick or you know what i can't stand up anymore my arms are too tired we, we don't have those natural guidelines mm. anymore, right? That, you know, when can you say, oh, well, I'm out of Zoom calls. That's not a thing. <laughs> yeah, neurologically, right? Microsoft's done some wonderful research on this. Neurologically, it's, you're actually frying your brain, right? You've all seen, you know, you've seen that graphic, right? Where your brain is like the color of my shirt after a few Zoom calls in a row. Right. So there are guardrails, but again, we can't see them anymore. And that's where we really need to dig in on a, sort of metrics driven basis and say, okay, well, this is actually too much. And there's an efficient frontier of work. You know, there's a, there's a, a place of, you know, you stress, right? Where it's positive, motivating stress that, you know, gets you to a good place and I'm energized and I'm challenged. And thinking about it as an, as an efficient frontier rather than a sort of strictly linear equation of just do more, 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 more. No, out here, we're doing the most. Beyond here, things fall back again. And, and that's kind of where we have to change our construct. I'm going to go off uh, off the beat here for a second and ask you something metaphorically or if not an analogously. And so whether it's U.S. mail, uh, Royal Post, Canada Post, quite frankly, or Royal Mail in the U.S., um, one thing I've learned working with some of these organizations is that the letter carrier has a route. And the letter carrier has uh, a route that is based on forecasting of what kind of goes in the bag or in the truck. And the letter carrier is allowed to do their route on their time. So if they finish by noon, they're done. If they finish at two, they're done. If they don't finish, they've got to continue to work on that route. But it's, you know, there's an ebb and a flow of, so to say, of how much mail comes every particular day for every residence, et cetera. But the, the forecasting has said, look, we know what would be the high load and we know it'd be the low load. And so we're going to kind of go earmark this in the middle. It seems to me, <laughs> Melissa, that we don't apply kind of Canada Post, U.S. Mail, et cetera, uh, um, practices or techniques inside our organization. We keep dumping on people. The next Zoom call, as you mentioned, right, like the do more with less. When are we going to learn? Like, is it to the point when we actually burn out an entire organization? Because now I think back to your point about HR, like they need to step out of the fire to actually recommend what it is that we need to do differently, yet they're in the fire of burnout and stress. So oh, the HR organizations are incredibly burned out right, yeah. right now. Incredibly. So it, it, yeah, I think it's it's a fabulous point. It made me think about some of the research I did again about kind of that transition between agrarian and industrial work. And so part of what happened was agrarian work worked a lot more like what you're describing, right? Like, mm -hmm. okay, I just need we gotta we gotta plow this field, right? This field has to get plowed. We're, it's not, you know, we're going to, we need to plow this field by noon. It's like this, this field has to get plowed, right? right? Just had to get done. Workers set to some extent their own pace. And what happened was with increasing technology in the industrial revolution, 
we needed people to work more like machines. And so that's when we started sort of parameterizing work mm. in certain ways. And the management tactics of the Industrial Revolution, just as you might expect, were, were all about getting people to think about time differently, which is super insidious and creepy when you start yeah. to really parse it out, right? It's uncomfortable, but it's exactly that, that dynamic that you're describing. The other piece is, and this is, sorry, this is going really dark, that a lot of how we manage performance today comes from slavery, that yeah. we didn't really care about individuals' output until we thought we owned them. And that should give us a lot of pause, because again, to your point, it's just the mail has to get delivered, the, you know, the field has to get plowed, et cetera, et cetera. But we've shifted to this slavery and industrial revolution way of thinking of, I need people to work at the pace of the machine in a way that's good for the machine, or I own you, so I'm going to strictly dictate your output, right? Neither of those things are actually good. And when we consciously articulate them that way, you're like, oh, no, no, in 2023, no company wants to work that way, but it's what we're doing. Uh, okay, well, it segues nicely to my penultimate question, and and that is about you You come up with a concept, two of them, again, which is just profound and brilliant. You call it greedy work and the piggy bosses. So define them for me and us, and then, again, what's the counteracting balance here such that we're not into greedy work and piggy bosses? So I can take no credit for greedy work. Greedy work, again, comes from the academic world, where the original study of greedy institutions was actually about cults, that why would people voluntarily give up too much of their life for the wrong amount of reward? And when you think about that, that's a really interesting statement about modern work. Mm. In some ways, greedy work is we've been asked to give up literally too many hours of our lives for, you know, something that's uh, Lori Rudeman makes this point really beautifully. You know, your job is going to love you back. Yeah. Right. So we've we've given up too much. And that's that that sort of insidious, greedy work. And the most interesting thing I found in the research, to be honest, was that we used to not pay a premium for overwork, that if you worked too many hours per week, you made less than others today, mm. you make more. You're more likely to get promoted, et cetera, et cetera. And it's very interesting from a, an inclusion point of view, because the rise of greedy work coincides with women coming into the workplace. And it feels like in some ways a barrier that got erected, like, OK, mm. women, you can come be in the workplace. But guess what? All jobs are now 80 hours a week if you want to really move up. And uh. so women who do more of the caregiving burden in society, right, that brick wall just whoop, right up in front of us. And it's a, so it's a very interesting thing to think about from an inclusion perspective, because a lot of the groups that get whacked by greedy work, you know, it could be foreign born workers who have extended families to support. Like, there's all kinds of inclusion angles to greedy work. It, it pushes less in, already less included groups out of the workforce, which is fascinating. And it makes the it makes everyone else miserable. Yeah. Well, again, the, then you kind of really well summarize what I want to ask you last. And that is, what is a human-centric decision? Because that's really, uh, towards the end of the book, that's kind of like, you're making the case, we need to shift towards this. So what is it and how do we how do we get there? It's really, you know, it's kind of thinking about people as people in reality. So it's, for instance, not treating people as disposable. <laughs> you know, we treat everybody from seasonal farm workers to investment banking analysts as effectively disposable assets, right? You know, we'll just get a lot of work out of you for the harvest season or for two years before you go back to business school, right? It doesn't matter because you're basically disposable, right? That's right. unhelpful. We don't think about people as people. 
So we don't account for needs, you know, sleep being probably the number one unaccounted for need. And again, that happens in, you know, entry level work. And that happens for very senior executives who have to travel and work globally, right? That's a sleep's a pervasive issue all the way down the chain. Um, and, and also, this is going to sound silly, but just planning a little bit more pessimistically would be kinder to human workers. Uh, you know, we've all been in workplaces where, you know, the tech breaks, the process fails, you know, whatever it is, who steps in and fixes it? It's all the humans. We, okay. as humans, we are so great. We are so resourceful, but we also burn ourselves out when there's never a plan B and we are just frantically clutching and MacGyvering everything. That That's exhausting. So that's also a piece of kind of how to think about things in a truly human-centered way. I love it. Well, Melissa Swift, thank you so much. The book is Work Here Now, Think Like a Human, and Build a Powerhouse Workplace. Where can we find out more about you and the book? Yeah, so I'm very active on LinkedIn. I'm fairly active on Twitter. You can find the book anywhere books are sold, from you know Amazon, Barnes & Noble, to your local independent books. It's on the shelves at The Strand, as I found out this weekend. So that was an exciting discovery. Sweet. I love it. Well, fantastic. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for doing what you do as well, which is helping us rethink how really the future of work is now, which is why I love the title Work Here Now, because I, I definitely don't necessarily believe that there is a future of work, but it, it is now we need to pay more attention to the now than the future. Thank you, Melissa. Thanks so much, Dan. All right, everyone. That was another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontefract. Today in the house, Melissa Swift, transformation leader at Mercer US and Canada and author of the book, Work Here Now. Tune in next time for another episode. Until then, thanks for listening and watching. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you.